0: Have you ever known someone who misjudges who you are? This person may know you quite well. They may even appreciate you. Yet there are certain conclusions that he or she falsely determines about you. That's frustrating, isn't it, when that happens? We don't like it. And we must all humbly admit that we do not see ourselves with perfect accuracy. So just because someone's view of me does not correspond to how I see myself doesn't mean necessarily that they're wrong. But having said that, there are times we know a person has drawn wrong conclusions. Conclusions about our nature, about our character that simply aren't right. That's not really what corresponds to the reality that we know. It's frustrating. It's not only frustrating, it really negatively affects our relationship to that person, to whatever degree he or she has misjudged us. And certainly on some level, we all misjudge one another at times. And we live with that and we grow with that. But sometimes that misjudgment is fundamentally flawed. And it really creates a rift between us. As born-again believers in Christ, a healthy relationship with God requires that we don't do that to God. That we not draw faulty conclusions about who He is, about His nature, about His character, about what He has done in this world. The Bible is written to reveal who God truly is and to guide us into a living relationship with Him. None of us is flawless in our understanding of this revealed truth. We differ with one another and we have to live with that. In fact, we must admit, every one of us is adversely influenced by false notions about God. Whether that's a direct misunderstanding of Scripture, or a complete cluelessness as to what Scripture teaches, or some other way, we miss things about God. We don't know Him for who He truly is in some respect. But we must labor diligently to understand what the Bible actually reveals about Him motivated by the realization that faulty conclusions will harm our relationship to the Lord, and that biblical conclusions are vital to living for God's glory and finding in Christ our soul's ultimate satisfaction. No knowledge in this world is more important to who you are, to how you live, to what you become or how you will spend eternity than your knowledge of who God is and the nature of your relationship to Him. This is of utter importance. And we need to get it right, to strive to get it right, to know who He truly is as revealed in His Word. In fact, this conviction is the driving motivation of our current series of sermons on the doctrine of divine providence. As this series begins to wind its way to a close, by way of extended application, in fact by warning and instruction, it's important that we realize that many born-again believers draw faulty and spiritually debilitating conclusions about God. And they do so by failing to grasp a vital feature of this doctrine. Now that's a bold statement before we get to that feature. That's a bold statement. To say that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are fundamentally wrong about how they view God because they trip over this doctrine of divine providence. But I think that is a statement that is supported by our studies in what God's Word reveals. And we need to be graciously courageous to say so. What is this vital feature? What is this place of contention? Where is it that so many miss the teaching of God's Word about who God is? This vital feature pertains to the relationship between God's sovereignty, the free will of man, and the presence of evil in this world. If you've been with us through the series, you say, we've been equipped to think about these things at some length. I have some knowledge of how these things relate to each other. But it's at this place, in drawing these relationships, the sovereignty of God, the free will of man, and the presence of evil, that many trip. Over these weeks, we've considered what the Bible teaches on these matters. And while we will not here review all of the texts and passages that we've looked at to establish the relationship between these three, we can summarize and say that we have learned on a number of levels that God ordains and governs all that comes to pass. Ruling with absolute freedom to choose and act as He pleases, with absolute power controlling every creature and circumstance, and with absolute wisdom conforming all things to the purpose for which He created the world. The Bible teaches this. We have seen it over and again secondly we have learned that man is endowed with free will and is wholly responsible to obey God although man's will is constrained by sin and by the circumstances that God ordains we have genuine free will we are held honestly and realistically accountable for what we choose to do But what we choose to do is constrained by our nature. And it is constrained by the circumstances that prevail. We choose what we want, but our freedom is not absolute freedom because there are these constraints upon us. Thirdly, we have learned that God's sovereign purposes and man's free will choices work in perfect congruity with one another. Neither is suspended or canceled out by the other. They are compatible realities. People choose what they choose. They genuinely exercise their free will. At the same time, God remains entirely sovereign as He ordains what we will choose. Knowing the circumstances, knowing the bent of our heart, God remains sovereign as we exercise free will. Somebody came up to me after the first service and said, this has been so helpful, I get it now. I always thought it was either or. I realize it's both and. I thank God somebody came to that realization Then others have as we've worked through it. And it's seeing the both and that is so vital to allow Scripture to speak for what it really says. Number four, God is morally perfect and sinless yet has ordained that sin be. He rules with meticulous sovereignty over every sinful deed, working all things together for the good of His people and for the glory of His name. I mention here every sinful deed. He rules sovereignly over all things and all that comes to pass. But in this area of evil, His rulership is meticulous. It is pervasive. It is complete. I realize... For anyone who visits among us here or you've not been part of much of this series, we're assuming a lot. It's like one long sermon and we're coming in these last weeks to application and we are building on much of what we've already discussed and understood. But if you have tracked with us through the series, you know that these ideas are revealed in Scripture. We've seen it time and again. It's clear. But I want to alert you today to the fact that there is a broad theological orientation among many Christians who do not draw these four conclusions. They are Bible-believing people. They love the Lord. They serve Him in faithful churches in many occasions. But they don't believe what we've just looked at and what we know the Bible teaches the reason is not because they failed to read the Bible. The reason is not because of some unique sinful orientation to the Lord. The reason is that they make a critical decision, and that decision is to prioritize the freedom of man, the free will of human beings, and then to adjust their understanding of God's sovereignty to fit accordingly particularly His sovereignty over evil and His sovereignty over salvation. So the idea is we start with the freedom of man, we start with free will, and then we fit the sovereignty of God into the cracks. We mold the sovereignty around of God around the solid truth of the free will of man now we've already talked about the fact that we believe scripture teaches the both and so this is unnecessary but there's many who believe it is necessary and so they make a critical decision to prioritize man's free will and with that come many implications what we're talking about here is what theologians would refer to as the decrees of god Let's just try to understand that briefly. When we talk about God's providence, we address His continuing influence in creation. God providentially preserves and governs the world that He created. He steers it to the end for which He made it. We have noted that Scripture teaches this consistently. When we talk about the decrees of God, we address God's determined plan in eternity past, to bring about all that would come to pass in the world that he would create. That sounds a little difficult, it's a little philosophical, but I think we can illustrate it fairly easily as drawing from one theologian's illustration and changing it a bit. But you have a house. That house, you know, had a blueprint. But you have lost the blueprint. It's never been given to you. And your task here in this little project is to go from the house to the blueprint. So what you're doing in a sense is going from what is and what is tangible and thinking backwards and saying if this is what's here in the house, then the blueprint must have been like this. Now, the illustration falls apart on some level because we could come up with a very, very accurate blueprint off of the house that's been made if we just took enough time to measure But there might be some things about the blueprint that we don't really fully understand. When we talk about the decrees of God, we're talking about the blueprint, and we don't have it. So we're looking at what the Bible reveals, that's the house, that's what's in front of us, that's a tangible revelation of Scripture. We're looking at the house, and then we're working our way back and saying, if this is the reality of the house then this is what the blueprint must have been as we look back in eternity to God's plan, God's blueprint. As many theologians go back in time to God's decrees, to His plan, they insist that in eternity past, God prioritized the free will of man. That's at the core, that's at the heart of what He chose to do. And everything else works itself out from there. That's the core of the blueprint, the free will of man. I'm not making this up. There are a very significant portion of Christian Bible believers who believe this. I quote from one, Jack Cottrell, who speaks authoritatively, I think, for this position. In his book, The Doctrine of God, he says this, Try it on for size. Let your biblical hat be firmly in place and think about this. Before committing himself to the creation of our world, Cottrell writes, God knew that sin would be a possibility because of the presence of free will. But he did not know whether sin would occur or how much evil would actually come about until he decided to bring this, this specific world into existence. Since this world was to be inhabited by free creatures, it was logically possible that they would choose never to sin. But in fact, they chose otherwise. Such is the risk of creating free will beings. To draw emphasis and make sure that we get it, he's arguing, and many believe what he's saying, that God purposed in eternity past to create the universe with a primary focus upon creating creatures in His image. That's at the core of the blueprint. And as creatures made in His image, they have free will. Secondly, in doing this, God took a risk. To create free will creatures is to create the possibility that people will sin. Thirdly, God did not know if His creatures would choose to sin or if they did, how bad things would get. It was impossible to know this. Because of how the blueprint is worked out, God could not know if or how much people would sin. What do you think? Is this what the Bible teaches? Let's look at the blueprint now from this perspective, from what Cottrell has said. The blueprint would work itself out something like this God determines to create mankind in his image with free will. That's the priority, that's at the heart of it all. Then, once God has created or chosen to create, we're in eternity past here. God foresees then at that point that people would sin. He foresees that mankind will exercise his will to rebel against God. Once God sees that, he then determines to provide salvation, to save people from their sins. Now, what's very important here is that he maintains free will. And so, God elects those He foresees will choose to be saved. He's looking into the future from eternity past. And having provided salvation now for people He didn't know were going to sin, He couldn't be sure that that was the case, He now chooses those to save that He knows will choose Him. Thus their free will is completely free. And then the final piece that we'll consider here is as God operates in the moral realm, so He operates in the natural realm. He does not in any way, shape, or form influence the free will of man and He does not in any way, shape, or form influence natural law except occasionally for a miracle. He really stands back, and the created world run by natural law with its ravages upon people, God has nothing to do with that. He is able to intervene miraculously, but He largely stands back from a fallen world and earthquakes and hurricanes and mudslides snuff out life. God has nothing to do with that. some crucial observations about this way of thinking, about this construct of who God is. First of all, regarding sin, God did not know if sin would occur until after He chose to take the risk to create free will creatures. God has nothing to do with evil. He in no sense of the term ordains evil to be. This is the understanding of God that flows from this theological system. And it labors very hard here to extract God from sin and evil in any way, shape, or form. He has nothing to do with the free choices people make. And when they sin, He has nothing to do with that. They're exercising free will, which He determined they would have the privilege to do at the very beginning of it all. When it comes to natural disaster that causes great trial, He has nothing to do with that either. This is the understanding of who God is. Regarding salvation, God elects unto salvation those that He foresees will choose Him. Thus God responds to what human beings choose to do. God is really a reactor here. He looks ahead into the future. I see this one will choose to freely choose me, so I will choose him, I will choose her. And then thirdly, regarding sovereignty, God's commitment to human free will is such that He chooses to limit His sovereignty so as never to interfere with what man chooses and only seldom to intervene in the destructive forces of nature. So it's not a both and, it's an either or. And what the case is, is human freedom is always left to run in absolute freedom. So looking at those three areas, the sovereignty of God, the free will of man, the presence of evil, you see how the construct works itself out. Here is what is believed about God. What we need to do, of course, is move off of getting into the blueprint of God and going back to the house and saying let's look at the realities of the house are the realities of the house in fact saying this about God's decree saying this about God's blueprint are these faithful conclusions with what we read in scripture let me just say as as graciously as I can the Bible's not exactly brimming with texts that speak of God relinquishing his sovereignty to man you're going to really have to search hard to find such a statement. You will not need to search hard to find people exercising free will. But that is different than saying that God chose to limit His sovereignty to the free will of man. You simply will not find that in the house of Scripture. This is a largely philosophical argument that is troubled to keep God out of evil far more troubled than God is. God never has done anything sinful. He has never tempted anyone with sin, but He speaks boldly to His sovereignty over evil. Over and over again the house says that. And so we need to read that back into the blueprint. The Bible speaks of man's responsibility to trust the Gospel. But it is wholly lacking of evidence that God is fundamentally one who responds to what we choose. Do we choose Christ in salvation? Yes. We exercise our will. We respond in faith. But does the Bible lay this out such that that decision to trust Christ the Savior, that exercise of our free will is primarily driven by our choice? And God reacts to it. Is that what the Bible says? And we look to create no fights here. We look to create no teams and competition. We simply want to be honest with what the house is teaching. With what the body of Scripture is saying. So let's look at these three points in turn. I would trust that for those that have worked through this series that you'd be able to fill this in. You'd be able to probably take an empty sheet of paper and though you may not be able to remember where all the texts were found, you could fill them right in underneath this. What does the Bible say regarding sin? Did God not know if sin would happen? Is that a true representation of the God of Scripture? He wasn't sure that sin would take place. He simply took a risk. This theory proposes to keep God free of all involvement with evil, but this simply is not how God speaks about Himself. The early believers acknowledge in prayer that those who killed Jesus collaborated to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's a very strange way of saying God had nothing to do with it. They are going to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined. Or in broader terms, as in Hannah's hymn, 1 Samuel 2, remember, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Said in a poetic way, it's simply saying God has everything to do with everything. Amos 3 6, does disaster come? to a city unless the Lord has done it? Isaiah 37 talks about that very situation. A disaster coming to various cities through the hand of a pagan general. And Isaiah writes, Have you not heard, as God speaks, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I plan from days of old what now I bring to pass that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded. Now that view of God may trouble us, but our responsibility is to come in submission to the God of Scripture, not to tell God who He has to be. He is free of evil. He is free of wrongdoing but working through the secondary causation of evil people who willingly choose to do what they do, God can say in His position of sovereign control, I planned this from days of old. If you want to say it this way, God planned to permit this to happen, but it would never happen apart from His plan. Lamentation 3, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad comes? Bad comes from the mouth of the Lord? Bad comes from the ordination of God? It does. It would not happen if He did not choose to permit it. Did not foresee it in eternity past. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides Me, there is no God. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. These are some specific, fairly succinct texts that we've reviewed. Every one of them, I believe. But let's add to this, someone could could say, we're just lifting texts out of context. But we're not doing that to begin with. Every one of these would present exactly what we're saying here. But remember, this isn't just text, not just succinct statements. Remember the whole narrative of the murder of Job's servants and the death of his children in a windstorm. Is God jumping up and down in Job 1 and 2 to say, I had nothing to do with this? Remember the sale of Joseph into slavery. You intended it for evil. God intended it for good. It's not God adjusted on the fly after you chose to do what you did wrong, but God all along intended this for good. He intended to use this wicked act to preserve life in Egypt. We talked about the hard heart of Pharaoh working itself out through Exodus, the first 14 chapters. Pharaoh hardens his heart. God hardens his ha- heart. It doesn't matter wh- wh- how we say it. David's decision to number the people. In one text says he was incited by Satan. In another, he was incited by God. The lying of the prophets of Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 22. And on and on it goes. We're not talking about just lifting a few verses out of context. We're talking about a theme that pervades the Scriptures. To think that God created man with no idea that evil would come to be is simply untenable. We cannot maintain this. It's not what the house of Revelation is saying about the blueprint of God's plan. It makes me almost shudder to think of the notion of God, of understanding God to be He did not know if sin would happen. And He looks into eternity and simply responds to what free will creatures will do. simply is not revealed in Scripture. It is a philosophical argument that's hoping to solve certain problems and in doing so creates massive numbers of problems that are far greater. Regarding salvation, God merely looks down the corridors of time and elects to save those that he foresees will choose him? Is that the orientation of Scripture? He again, it, it doesn't work. John six forty-four, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I need to stop for just a moment here. We have to realize that the Bible wasn't written to counteract this teaching that we're talking about today. You're not going to go to a text of Scripture and say, see, here it's specifically saying that's wrong. that, That thinking wasn't there. But as we go to the house and we look at what it says, we have to ask, is this what naturally flows out of Scripture? Is this what's indicated about the blueprint? Think of what's indicated here. Think of the orientation that Scripture lays out John 6, no one can come to Me unless it is granted him by the Father. There's the orientation. It starts with God. We do come to Him. But not unless the Father permits. John 10, the work that I do in My Father's name bear witness about Me, but you do not believe because you are not part of My flock. The orientation toward God responding to man or man responding to God. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now again, someone could argue from this, well, this has nothing to do with individual salvation, just the followers of Jesus. But again, note the orientation. Note the direction in which following Christ is displayed here. You did not choose Me, but I chose You. Now, did they choose Him? Choose well, of course, on some level they did. Remember Matthew, Levi, leaving his tax booth? Come, follow Me. He got up off his seat and followed. They chose to follow Christ. But the orientation of it is, you did not choose Me. I chose you. That's the orientation. That's where we start. In Acts When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. They believed because they were appointed to eternal life. Now notice in Ephesians 1, once again, the orientation toward God's initiative in salvation. He chose us. In Him. When? When? before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of our will, which He foresaw, we would exercise to choose Him. Is that what it says? No, according to the purpose of His will. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. Every pointer in this passage goes from God to us. There is no indication here that we should begin to see salvation as God responding to what He would foresee we would do. Second Timothy one nine. God saved us. And called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. The purpose was not our purpose to choose Christ. The purpose is His purpose to choose us. And He did this before the ages began. I know some of this is hard to factor in and to understand and to grasp and you may be really struggling with this. Just just look at it this way and say, salvation may be much bigger than you think. There may be much more going on here than you ever imagined. What this should do is not trouble us, but ultimately humble us and place us in a position of awe. Regarding sovereignty. By the way, I should say, again, text, but we have full passages saying these same things. Ephesians 1, Romans 9. We're not just lifting out a few phrases out of context. There's full passages that develop this theme of God's sovereignty and salvation. And more generally, regarding sovereignty, do we believe that God limits His sovereignty to the free will of man? No one in any orthodox position, no one who believes the Bible in any way, shape, or form has ever denied free will. There's somebody that says, the church is teaching that we don't have free will, that we're not responsible to respond to the Gospel. That's a lie. No one has ever said that that believes the Bible. Because the Bible doesn't teach that. We believe that people exercise free will. But does the Bible ever say that in the exercise of our free will, God limits His sovereignty? That the Bible doesn't say. Again, going to the house before this thinking even existed to reason back to the blueprint of God, think of the orientation of the Bible. Psalm one thirty nine sixteen. Your eyes saw My unformed substance. In Your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for Me, when as yet there were none of them. It just doesn't sound like God in eternity past, looked into the future, figured out what I would do, and responded. It's much more the other direction. Daniel 4, God does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. He does according to His will with the inhabitants who are free will agents. And none can stay His hand. Nobody can turn Him back. No one can oppose the will of God. Ultimately, Job 42 and verse 2, No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah 14, 24 and 27, As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? Proverbs nineteen twenty one Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Again, Lamentation 3, Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Ephesians 1 and verse 11, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. So as we look at these three ideas, the sovereignty of God, the free will of man, the presence of evil, how does the Bible teach us to put these things together? In no way, shape, or form can we come to the conclusion on the basis of Scripture that the way He wants us to put it together, what He wants us to believe about the blueprint is that God started with the priority of giving creatures free will and limited His sovereignty all along the way in order to maintain that free will. People have free will. He did create them that way. They choose what they want in these moral areas. But we don't start with the free will of man. We start with the sovereignty of God. That's where Scripture starts. Remember that both the sovereignty of God and the free will of man are compatible realities. Neither is suspended by the other. But when we look at where the Bible starts, we must start with His sovereignty working in confluence with the free will choices that people make. Now, I... I'd like in some sense to just leave it here. But obviously there's real people in real churches that believe these things, and it's fairly obvious what we're talking about. So let me just say pointedly that in a general, broad sense, what I've laid out here by way of negative contrast is what was referred to as Arminian theology in general terms. Churches that would imbibe this theology most specifically would be Pentecostal churches, Charismatic churches, Wesleyan-type churches. There are indeed many Baptist churches that have pieces of it. I don't know that there would be many Baptist churches that would imbibe the whole piece, the whole theology, the whole system, but there are many that have very significant aspects of this teaching in their churches. We have people who believe aspects of this teaching in our church and they're members in good standing and we love them and that's fine and we want to continue to talk and work through these things. None of us is born into all this knowledge. We come to it slowly but surely. All of us can be theoretically wrong. What we need to do is work together not to create a fight or an argument or teams Not to have a category of those who get it and those who don't. All of that's evil. What we want to do is be faithful with Scripture and challenge one another to believe what the Bible teaches. Now as we talk of Baptists who might be very typical or or similar to us, as we would talk about Pentecostal churches and Charismatic churches, many Charismatic churches, not all, but many, as we would talk about them, we realize that within these groups are Bible-believing people who love the Lord with all their heart. And we love them because of that. They do not set out to minimize the sovereignty of God. That's not their agenda. That's not what they want to do. They don't want a small God who's uninvolved, but the fact of the matter is as they come to conclusions about who God is, He has essentially nothing to do with natural law. And He has really nothing to do with our salvation other than providing an answer. We are the ones who choose Him. That's the orientation. And when you think such things about God, it's going to have some effects in your life. Now, I'm going to illustrate just one fairly safe idea. We could go into the three areas we've considered sin and salvation and sovereignty and and draw out many other implications. I'm not going to do that because we've spent some time on that. But let me draw just one example of a place where there's trouble. In their misunderstanding of God, in their zealous attempt to safeguard God from having anything to do with evil, they misread God believing that the world is run largely by human choices and by natural law. These are people who love God. They don't want a small God, but you've just created one. And I don't mean they're worshiping a different God, but you've created a view of God that really restricts Him radically. The result then on the part of people who love God and want to serve Him within this context is they seek a larger space for God. With a smaller view of God, they want a larger space for God and particularly within certain circles, the compensation comes through the category of miracle. The Pentecostal charismatic emphasis on miracle, for them miracles are a welcome place where God breaks in on natural law and where God breaks in on human freedom. But the overemphasis upon miracle simply betrays a misunderstanding of providence. God is not on the back stands watching natural law ravage people. He is not standing back in the stands with His hands folded knowing that some people have chosen Him and some won't and that's the end of it. And He has nothing to do with it. He's not standing back as people make free choices and just saying, well, there's there's where it goes. God ordains and governs very little that comes to pass in this way of thinking because He never exercises His sovereignty against free will, and He seldom, if ever, intervenes with natural law. So we can rejoice with these Bible-believing people that they are resistant to secular philosophies and ardently believe that God brokers influence in the world, but the problem is, is that they see miracles everywhere. Because it's the only way to get God into the picture in one sense. Now this isn't formal and theological. It's just a practical application of it as we're seeing miracles everywhere. God showers Christians with miracles like a clown on a parade float showers eager spectators with fistfuls of candy. And I mean nothing negative by the idea of clown. I just mean that it's just a picture in my mind where you get showered with candy. There's miracles falling everywhere. Showers of blessing. This is showers of miracles. In the end, what qualifies for miracles then becomes ridiculously small because of this desire for God to be big, and He is. It does not rain on your picnic, even though the weather reporter said it would. It's a miracle. No, the weather reporter just got it wrong again. (laughs) There was a shift in the weather pattern. And God had everything to do with that weather pattern and everything to do with that weatherman saying what he did and that person being wrong. The light turns red and you discover at the light that you have a flat tire which you wouldn't have noticed if you weren't sitting there and right there is a gas station and you pull right into it and get the tire fixed. It's a miracle. No, it's just where your tire got flat and... God, in His providence, was merciful to you for that to happen. He would be just as involved if you had run the red light. And you're going down the road and you blow a tire and get into an accident. He's not in the stands watching with nothing to do with it. He's ruling sovereignly over that event for reasons we cannot fully understand or know, but God is in it. Not a miracle. The baby gets over a cold and you can go to church for the first time in a month. It's a miracle. Well, In in this culture, it might be a grade B miracle in this weather that we're having right now. You kind of think of that sometimes. You know God's God's in it all. It's not a miracle. child's body healed, but God was providentially working in that healing as the great physician to allow you to get to church for the first time in four weeks. It's the providence of God. When we look at providence rightly, miracle falls under the broad scale of providence. It's one way that God brokers influence in this world. But then we can give a right definition of miracle. I draw from two theologians that I think are reflecting Scripture ably. McCune says a miracle is a direct and immediate intrusion of God's power into the time-space mass continuum. Erickson says, by miracle, we mean those special supernatural works of God's providence which are not explicable on the basis of the usual patterns of nature. God is in the storm. He's in the weather. He's in the wind. He orchestrates and controls all that comes to pass, but there are moments of time when He intervenes in the natural realm miraculously. Part of His providence but a unique part of His providence. In a miracle, supernatural forces counter natural forces. Creative powers intervene in the natural order. What this also allows, by understanding miracle properly and its relationship under providence, it allows us to rightly define what constitutes a miracle and its place in God's purposes. The place of miracle is not God showing up to counteract free will or to break the laws of nature. The purpose of miracle is to authenticate that God is God to authenticate a message, to authenticate a messenger. Certainly God heals at times uh, just out of compassion, or Christ heals at times out of compassion. But even then, all of the miracles of Scripture are saying something about God, something unique, something unique about His message, something unique about His messenger. Miracles aren't descending on us like raindrops from heaven all the time. God very rarely intervenes in this way miraculously, but He is in every moment and every event, breathing His presence into it, orchestrating, controlling, ordaining, and guiding it. That's His providence. So the key in this is to put the emphasis on God's sovereignty, not on free will. Are we denying free will? No. But we're saying that the Scripture puts the heavy emphasis upon the sovereignty of God And then we make that fit with what we know to be the case, and that is the free will of man. The end for which God created the universe is not to extol the wonders of man's free will. But it just sounds silly to think of God standing, I have declared My glory, I have presented My glory in this world by creating creatures in My image who exercise their free will. There's much more to His glory than that. God's fundamental orientation is not toward our free will. His fundamental orientation is toward His own glory. This is the end for which He created the world, to display that glory to us, and in His sovereign choice, to display it to us in our sin, which we would choose freely. False notions then about a person can negatively affect our relationship with them, and we need to understand that false notions about God can negatively affect our relationship with God. You may not be there. You may not be able to put this together. You may not understand it all. You may not agree with it all. The thing that I would say to you is be at peace, keep working, keep laboring. You're not going to be put in a box. You're not going to be tied up behind the church and shot or anything like that if you don't agree with everything I think. But everyone who struggles in these matters, I say the same thing. Keep reading the Bible. Keep hearing what the texts are actually saying. It's going to blow your mind. You won't be able to get it all to work. But this to me is one of the most troubling things about false theology and false ideas about God is we get Him figured out. We get everything figured out so that it works rightly and it commends itself to our mind. We serve a God who said, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. And He meant it. Keep coming back to the text of Scripture. Scripture. Keep reading it and understanding it for what it's truly conveying. It was not written to commend itself to our reason on the first read. It is the most reasonable and logical book in the universe because it's based on the mind of God. But it is not going to present itself to us that way. Be patient, be faithful, but keep reading texts. Don't reason yourself around what the Bible says. Read what it says. Hear what it says. And permit your rational musings to be subjected to the truth of God's Word. I conclude just to say once again, God does not have some things to do with some things. He has everything to do with everything. And He loves you. And He wants you to draw close to Him and to come to know Him in all of His glory. Let's strive to do that as we pull each other along and as we love those with whom we even disagree, but pulling one another to see the glory and the mercy, the grace and the greatness of our God. Father, we need Your aid. How to be faithful to Scripture, how to speak about false ideas about You when some of our closest brothers and sisters in Christ hold these ideas, how to do so being gracious to them and humble, recognizing we don't know it all, and yet being fair to say this is what the Bible says. I pray, God, that You would nurture in this church never, A proud spirit, but a humble spirit that is broken by Your sovereign grace. I pray that we would see the wonder of Your salvation in Christ. And perhaps there's someone here who's struggling with sin, who is not born again, simply said. I pray, God, that You would be drawing them even through this revelation of who You are in all Your glory, and that they would see in the light of this splendor something that they want. Something that they want, not something they want to run from. Bring them to saving faith in Jesus today, I pray, according to Your purposes. And may we all be bending our minds to understand Your truth and to walk worthy of Your name. Through Christ I pray, Amen.